OCO Taishu Shidanalai. I'm Jay Winton Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous People's Truce Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio, podcasts, and everywhere else. I'll be right back to introduce my guest for today. Don't go away. Teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. Earth, teach me suffering as old stones suffer with memory. Earth, teach me humility as blossoms are humble with beginning. Earth, teach me caring as the mother who secures her young. Earth, teach me courage as a tree which stands alone. Earth, teach me freedom as an eagle with soars in the sky. Earth, teach me resignation as the leaves which die in the fall. Earth, teach me regeneration as the seeds which rises in the spring. Earth teaches me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. Earth, teach me to remember kindness as a dry field weeps the rain. This is the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truce justice for all. I am honored to have three of my good friends, sisters and my brother today, Shonda Buchanan, and I'll tell you a little bit about her in a little while, Uh, Kimberly Knight, and Okra Odofo. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about Shonda Buchanan. She's an award-winning author and educator Uh, She is the former interim chair assistant professor of the Department of English and Foreign Languages at Hampton Hampton University out here in Virginia. Um, She's done so much. She was a writer in residence at William and Mary College in Virginia. And uh, she wrote a family memoir, Black Indian which was, it just came out the last part of uh, 20... 2019. 2019. And any of you that know me and know me personally, I speak highly of her all the time. She's a real sweetheart. Thank you, Jay. (laughs) Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. And then I got my sister from all the way down in North Carolina. She's Halawasaponi. Her name is Kimberly Knight. Kimberly just got her master's degree. You, you almost finished it, right? That's right. My master's is complete in social work. From North Carolina Central. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes, go Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> and, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. And my third guest is uh, Okra Adolfo and... Uh, I know you got a master's degree too, don't you? Uh, yes, sir. I actually do. Um, I got my bachelor's as well as my master's from North Carolina Central University as well. NCC, go Eagles. Um, yes, sir. And you also teach school now. Yes, sir. I teach uh, secondary. Uh, I have a degree in English, so I'm teaching secondary education. We're going to talk today about several things. First of all, Kimberly and Okra, you had scheduled the first black American Indian powwow in North Carolina that was supposed to take place this summer, but because of COVID-19, uh, had changed plans. 
And uh, Shonda and myself, we were invited to be there to speak. But when you do it next year, we'll be there. Right, Shonda? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. What was the inspiration behind this uh, Black Indian powwow? Uh, the inspiration for me, this is Kimberly, was that um, I grew up in a very diverse family. My father's family is Eastern Band Cherokee and from the Ivory Coast. So having a West African and Native um, background on my father's side and my mother's side, I've been able to discover in recent years of African-American and Hollowasaponi. So having those tribal relations was really important, and it was really great that I wanted to see a powwow in North Carolina that represented people from both African-American and indigenous backgrounds. So that's why it was important to me. And I'm so thankful for people like Shonda and Akira for being on the team uh, because they're on our advisory council, and they have been serving it honestly very well. Real good. Okay, we're going to let Okra speak. Go ahead, Okra. Yes, sir. Um, so the inspiration, I mean, interestingly enough, uh, ever since Kim and I first met, uh, we've been having these dialogues uh, regarding, you know, black and native identity uh, and that dual heritage and the importance of, you know, celebrating that dual heritage and likewise synthesizing it. Uh, one point of our conversation is always the fact that there's a rift um, that exists for most people who have a dual heritage, uh, black and Native American or African and Native American. Um, it's almost like you're being forced to choose. Um, and so when we conceptualize the idea of the powwow, one thing that we wanted to make sure that we did was actually celebrate the duality of the heritage as opposed to just allowing the continued marginalization. So uh, I'm honored to serve on the committee uh, with, you know, people like Shonda. Honored to uh, be heading up the interview process uh, for the roundtable discussion that we'll be participating in. And likewise, honored to be participating in today's uh, discussion. Absolutely. Shonda, how did they, how did they, uh, how did they get you into this? Yeah, uh, Kimberly and I, um, I was coming to Wake Forest to do a talk, and uh, Kimberly, I think you reached out, or did I reach out via email? I reached out via email, because oh. I was yes. interested in your book. Yes. yes, 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 and that's where we first met and just realized that we had so much in common. Um, you know, her, it's interesting because I am, so grateful to hear how she grew up, you know, in the culture, in the tradition, you know, with her regalia and her stories and her, you know, her family legacy. And for me, my stories, um, as I write about, you know, in my book, Black Indian, my stories have been oral narrative and, you know, with mom and dad saying, you know, my mom saying, you know, you have some Indian in you. And my father saying, well, you know, you're Choctaw, you know, we're from Oklahoma, Mississippi. And so for me, it was a part of, you know, retracing my ancestors' migration trail from uh, where I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and then back to Indiana, which is where some of the first free people of color settlements um, happened in Indiana. And my family were some of the first folks to found those settlements. And then again, backwards to Tennessee and finally North Carolina and Virginia. And so on my mom's side, I traced us back to the Kahari in Sampson County, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And then also on my mom's side, the Eastern Band Cherokee uh, on the Stafford side, uh, Hertford and um, Halifax and a couple of other places over there, too. So I hadn't grown up with, this his, with, with the actual knowledge of the tribes and languages and culture and regalia, but it was something that was inherent in my family. So just being a part of this powwow, um, the first black Indian powwow in North Carolina is a kind of coming home for me. And I'm grateful and incredibly honored. So how did you, how did it make you feel after you, you got all of these great discoveries about your ancestors? You know, what did it, did it send a chill up your spine or what? 
Oh, my gosh. Just been doing the research. I've been researching this for the last 30 years, really. And at each juncture, like at each moment, each point when I found a grandfather, you know, uh, his World War II records, first, that's significant because, you know, no one told me about this grandfather who fought in World War II. And then on one of his, um, the registration card, he'd written, written Indian. And so it was like, okay, so this is this is what he was able to to list. And then later, you know, it, that kind of disappeared, and he became mulatto, and then he became Negro, and you mm-hmm. know, so the labeling piece has just been the labeling and relabeling, uh, which is also erasure, mm-hmm. um, has just been incredibly significant um, for me in the finding of it. So every time I saw something, every time I found an ancestor, or located them. Um, yes, it sent chills up my spine, but it was also a, a validation. Um, it was also a sense of we are bi and triracial, and and the records show us this. Our oral history, our oral narratives show us this, and we get to embody that in our culture now, and no one can take that from us. That's for sure. Uh, Kimberly? How did it make you feel when you yeah. when you came to the realization that you are all these different people? For me, it was a beautiful experience because with my paternal side, my dad's side, I was able to experience it like Fonda was talking about. I was able to, my first language was Cherokee language, Chihuahua hmm. language, so I was able to have that as a base. I started learning English while it was in elementary school. So it was wonderful to have that base and then being able to learn medicinal practices and spiritual practices of my African grandmother, who's first generation from the Ivory Coast. Mm-hmm. So being able to adapt to that, and then my father's um, father being from the reservation, my dad's well from the res, and being able to have those experiences of going to the res and seeing family was really eye-opening for me, and it gave me a really broad perspective on what blackness and indigenous life was for people in North Carolina. So... Um, the only thing was when I would go to powwows, I just didn't see enough representation that looked like myself in the head staff. So mm-hmm. that's where I would get concerned and think, well, where are we? Because in my family, I'm seeing all these people. And in friends of the family, I'm seeing all these people. But where are we at the head staff and the powwows? So, but it was a beautiful experience researching. And now that I'm doing my mom's side, I'm discovering so much um, great things about her family's well, you know, that was probably a rude awakening for you um, yes. because so many, so many people never get an opportunity to research who they are. Okara, how about you? Um, very enlightening. Um, enlightening and frustrating simultaneously. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the reason I say that is that, I mean, growing up, I've always known that, you know, we had uh, a Native American heritage. Uh, my grandfather um, and his side of the family, you know, Cherokee and Saponi. So that was, you know, that was known. But there was a, a risk in the family because uh, my grandfather chose to marry, you know, a African-American woman. Um, so, and you find this, you know, I don't know if it's something that's, you know, unique to the South or what have you, but there, there's oftentimes a rift there, uh-huh. uh, between some Native communities and some African-Americans. Um, and so growing up, it was known, you know, that we were Native, but at the same time, it was, there was a rift because of that issue. Um, it wasn't anything that I ever took on. I was proud of the heritage. I just was not extra knowledgeable of it. As I began to research, uh-huh. um, I was able to see how craftily and how much energy and effort had been put into hiding uh, black native identity. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned about Walter Plecker. I learned about paper genocide. I learned about, you know, all these things. And it actually made uh, the sociological experiences that I had growing up you know, that whole risk in between, you know, the Native and the Black, you know, family members, it made that make sense. So, you know, on the one hand, it's super enlightening. You know, on the other hand, you know, putting the pieces back together, you know, finding the death certificates, the birth certificates, seeing 
uh, Indian on the birth certificate and later seeing colored and mulatto and Negro on the death certificate of the same individual. Mm-hmm. You know, very enlightening, but simultaneously frustrating. All right. So, where do we go from here with this? You know, a lot of white people, not all white people now, we can't, you, you can't put them all under the blanket, but a lot of white people grew up under the, the impression that we've killed all the Indians, ain't no more Indians. But when folks begin to come out of the woodwork with their ancestry, and a lot of times, um, like my my uh, my my friends, um, I got a lot of friends that their their grandmas and grandpas did not want to admit that they were Indian, and, and it was it was justification for that, because up until 1934, the early 40s, there were prices on Indians' heads, uh, and that went back to the 17, 1800s, when the fur trappers and, you know, the, the guys that, that collected pelts were out there killing animals, there were a lot of tribes that would not submit to the colonialistic mind or the way of thinking, and they just would not submit. So what the government did was to offer bounties, and, and we'll just use today's figures. They had a price on Indian heads. They they would tell these farriers and trappers, "Well, you're doing okay making money trapping these animals, but we can offer you a lot more." Well, what do you mean? Well, if you go out there and kill us an Indian man and scalp him and leave the ears on the scalp and around the nape of the neck, and then when you pull that scalp off, make sure you peel that damn red skin off of their bodies and put it in the scalp lock. Bring it to us. And we will give you, I'll just use these figures, $1,000. And if you kill a woman and do the same thing, we'll give you you $750. And if you kill a child from infancy until puberty and do the same thing to that child, we'll give you $500. That was a threat that Indian people had to live under for, for centuries. And a lot of Indian people that I know today tell me stories of how they became black. And I said, well, how's that? Well, we didn't want to uh, jeopardize our lives and the lives of our families by saying we were Indian, so we hid our, we hid our, our Indianism in the black race. And my grandfather, on my mother's side, he even did that. He was a dark man, but he was a full-blood Cherokee. And he did that, and I asked him when I was about 22 years old, I said, Grandpa, you know you're a Cherokee Indian, so why did you say you were black? He said, you see these 28 children that I got, me and your grandma got? Yeah. I had to protect them. He said, I didn't worry about me, but I had to protect them. That's why I hid in the black race. And then uh, he was also a Pullman porter. And I said, well, how did you get to be a Pullman porter? because I told him I was black. So our people have had to live under these lies just to survive for a very long time in this country. Anybody want to make a comment on that? Yeah, I think that is incredibly interesting about the verbal confirmation that you have of, you know, full bloods hiding in the black race, Mm -hmm. which is a bit of a dichotomy just for... For black folks because we have always been told that when you claim Indian you're trying to not be black like you're trying to exoticize yourself mm. <laughs> so <laughs> that's really interesting um, just like a different perspective uh, and also I think that the scalping aspect of that was started by the French if I'm yeah, not correct that's true yeah we didn't have that over here we didn't have that they brought that mess over here yeah, right. Started by the French, and it became it proliferated to 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 at, at a certain point, the act of scalping, like the physical act of scalping, became a metaphorical 
um, kind of a raping of the, of the spirits of the people, right? Mm-hmm. And then, in in some weird way, it became synonymous with American Indians. You know that they were the ones who 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 scalped, or they were the ones who were brutal or who brutalized first. And so then that's when they, that's why they had to be uh, wiped out, erased, and removed from from their um, you know from the country from Indian country. So I just think it's really interesting how history. Um, and the, the the perception and portrayal of American Indians at different junctures has meant different things for us. But the the key piece here is that we only get bits and pieces in our history books. There there is no that I have seen a succession of from 1501 when you know the first Spaniards came to Hispanola and mm-hmm. um, enslaved the first American Indians. This is the experience that American, you know, Indians, North and South American Indians have had throughout the duration of, mm-hmm. of colonization. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that, you know, so I would love to see that. But, you know, the interesting thing about that, Shonda, is, um, of course, the first slaves in, a, in, in, in the Western Hemisphere were us. And, yeah. and when Columbus made his first voyage back to Spain... Uh, in the bottom of that boat was gold. There were fruits and vegetables that they didn't have on that side of the ocean. And there were native people in chains and shackles. And when he got back to Spain, the deacons of some of those Spanish villages sold them into slavery. But it didn't last too long because it's very hard to enslave a person in their own homeland. Indians Mm -hmm. would just get up and run away or escape and it wouldn't come back, and they couldn't find them. So they had to find somebody to do the work because they were too damn lazy to do anything. And so they went to Africa, and they stole the African and brought the African over here. And the African didn't know nothing about this place. So where could the African run? Nowhere. And that's how they were so successful with the slave trade for so many years. Kimberly, I'm, I don't want to meet, leave you and, and Okra out of the conversation. So, you know, I know you got thoughts on it. Let me have them. Come on, Kimberly. When you were telling the piece about people identifying as black um, or colored or Negro when it comes to just going down through the generations, for my family, that's very true. Specifically, my mother's side, many a times my mom would tell me stories as well as my maternal grandmother that it was easier to say they were black so that way they would not have the issue of having to be transferred to the normal school or placed on a reservation. Mm-hmm. And that was always a fear they had. And many of my mom's family also passed for white. So they would wear blonde wigs. They would sometimes just to get public jobs um, back in the early 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on, you know, different things they had to do back then. But definitely I think the intersectionality of both of those ethnic backgrounds is something deeply rooted. We do have ancestral family members on my dad's side where there were African slaves that lived on Cherokee reservation in Cherokee land before it was a reservation. That's right. And that were there to escape to it. So I think just in general, I think these both have tried to um, both ethnic backgrounds have tried their best to survive colonialism and it's been a tragedy and now that we're all reconnecting yeah. and coming back home per se i think now that we're starting to see a lot more unification in that but there is still a lot of colorism on reservations oh, um, yeah. moving forward yes that we is. have to talk about now. yeah mm-hmm. that's my thought yeah so um yeah that's that's a super hot topic yeah okra you got the floor those women can talk can't they I- <laughs> I, I i uh i play my role i, I sit back and i enjoy and i listen <laughs> uh, in terms of the colorism, I mean, Kimberly touched on a very hot topic. I mean, that's still very prevalent, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I won't go into detail like I really want to. Uh, well, why not? <laughs> but it's still a, a, a major issue. Um, I try to be politically correct sometimes. Uh, but when no, we look no, at... No, 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 we don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> say, say, for example, if we look at Webster's uh, 1828 Dictionary, right? Uh-huh. And we look up the term American. It, it specifically states a native of America originally applied to the aboriginals or mm-hmm. copper colored races mm-hmm. found here by the Europeans, but now applied 
to the descendants of Europeans born in America. Go on and preach, brother. Right? Go ahead. You know, so that that gets us to the to the root of the issue. You know, the fact that the European injected, you know, the issue of colorism. Uh, it's been a divide and conquer tactic, you know, since you know indigenous people have come in contact with it. Um, and it needs to be explored in, in, in much more depth. It also needs to be analyzed from a sociological vantage point because we have to look at the fact that on both sides of the coin, whether we're looking at African ancestry or indigenous American ancestry, there has been an acceptance uh, historically and as well as present day of colonial standards, mm-hmm. you know, uh, colonial ideas regarding ethnicity, complexion, race, uh, ideas that if we trace ourselves back to our origins, ideas that our ancestors did not entertain, but at some point began to entertain. And it's really a prevalent issue even today. You know, even when we're looking at, you know, uh, Native American, African American relations and, you know, some of the experiences that I've heard recounted uh, from people who clearly have Native American ancestry, but may visit a powwow and, and not be received with open arms or mm-hmm. what have you. There, there's a lot to discuss uh, just regarding the, the sickness that has been injected into our communities and, and what we need to do about it and how we need to resolve it going forward. Well, let me, let me just, let me, let me hit upon something before we go to a break. Um, when President Obama got elected the second time, the American Indian Society here in Washington, D.C., historically has always given an inaugural ball, an American Indian inaugural ball, for whoever gets elected. They didn't do it for Trump, thank God. But um, I went to that, to, to, that, to that ball for the second time, uh, second election of Obama. And I met a lot of Indians from out west. But this was one particular Indian. He was an elder. Not an elder, but he was an older guy like me, right? And they got to talking about who was an Indian. And I said to him, I said, well, what about the black Indians, the Cherokee freedmen in Oklahoma? Oh, they ain't Indians. Those are just colored colored people trying to be Indians. And I looked at him. I said, let me explain something to you. Those people in Oklahoma that are freedmen are descendants of black people and Indians from the Cherokee Nation on the East Coast before there was even a trail of tears. And he, he says, uh, well, I don't believe that. I said, I don't, I don't care whether you believe it or not, but it is the truth. And there were a couple of other people there that had black blood. And, and they jumped all over him, right? So he just kind of shut the conversation down. And this, this thing, this racism thing, from some of our Native brothers and sisters in tribes out West, is so pervasive that it, that it makes you almost sick on your stomach to even try to talk to them. Because I learned as a, as a young guy that a fool is a fool is a fool. And you cannot reason with a fool. Any comments on that before we go to break? Before we go to break, I'll say this. Uh, I think that attitude is more prevalent amongst those who do not closely resemble the Webster Dictionary 1828 definition of American. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we'll we'll leave it there and touch back on it when we come back. All right. The American Indigenous People's Truths, Justice for All. The most dangerous show on radio. And we'll be back shortly. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the American Indian Indigenous... Well, you know what, that word American. Uh, this whole thing about, uh, you know, Native people. And Shondo, you, I think you will agree with me. They're not really many full-blood anything anymore. No, there, I don't think there are any pure bloods. I mean, so... Um, so I was at that um, the inauguration ball for um, Obama. I was there as well, and uh, it was it was an honor. It was a really beautiful experience, even though it was cold as all get out. Uh-huh. Um, but I I will say, um, I think that due to colonization, due to race mixing, due to ethnicity mixing. Um, due to, you know, some, some of the nations um, owning slaves, the proliferation of the Buffalo soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in Indian communities, um, uh, the slaves that the five civilized tribes themselves owned or owned because they had married them mm-hmm. or, um, you know, so, uh, so, so there are so many intersections where, you know, black people and full-blood American Indians have come together, and there are many, many intersections where American Indians and white people have come together. Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, Dutch, the the Swedes, the you know those who came to quote unquote settle, like the Brits and the French, mm-hmm. right? And the Germans. And the Germans and the Portuguese, and you know, so um, so, so in the 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 term mixed blood, I think represents all of us now and or, or blending i'm sorry or blendians blendian is another you know we could say blendian um but I, I i just don't think there are any pure bloods and if anyone you know if wants to set up a testing site you know a dna testing site in indian country i would be so fascinated to see who's locked to that you know well, let's do a testing site and get rid of covid 19 first <laughs> Right, get rid of COVID nineteen first, right? Exactly. Well, you know, with the with the COVID, maybe <laughs> little DNA in there. But but again, it's like you you have so many dichotomies playing against each other because knowing that if we did test DNA, many of them would be maybe seventy five or eighty five full blood. Maybe maybe they'd be full blood. So forgive mm-hmm. me to those to you know to my brothers and sisters who are. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you you we know that mixing occurred. We, but blood quantum and then the, the physical representation, like the skin color, give, uh, makes us, the darker-skinned Indian, ostracized. Um, it does allow for the lighter-skinned Indian or, or quote-unquote, the white Indian to be accepted more and not carded when they go to powwows. Um, I've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I, literally, I've had, um, uh, some assistant chiefs stop me at the Chickahominy powwow many, many years ago when I was coming out of the circle. And this is the second time that I had gone in, which was intertribal. And they met me at, at the circle when I was exiting and they said, we told you not to dance anymore. And I was like, what? And so it became this whole like moment of, standing up for who I am as a, as a mixed blood, as a person who has both the blood and the, and the oral history and mm-hmm. the records. Got the proof. Got the proof. I wrote about this Indian country today, uh-huh. um, being black at a Chickahominy powwow. Uh, so at any rate, um, I think the question of blood is an un, you know, a, a highly unexplored um, uh, kind of t- quote-unquote territory for us to even more so establish um, our authenticity and our right to call ourselves Indian. Well, you know, I have a cousin. Um, she's a dancer. And uh, she was at a powwow, and I was with her this was years ago. And and one of these so-called full blood full bloods walked up to her and says, let me see your card. Huh. So I looked at her. She says, what kind of card? your Bureau of Indian Affairs card that says that you're an Indian. Yeah. And I stepped in. I said, well, you know what? If she has a card or she does not have a card, that's none of your concerns. I said, you're standing there posing as an Indian with your half-white self. You know, let me see your damn card. (laughs) 
So that, right. Yeah, yeah. That that conversation ended, and we know about the five dollar Indians, you know, and and on and on and Absolutely. on. But I I got a serious problem when 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 people that that claim to be Indians think that they've got some kind of an edge on people that may be just a shade or two darker than them. Did they ever look at the pictures that 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 that? Uh, Custis took when he was traveling through Indian country in the early days. Most of the Indians were dark-skinned people. Yeah, I got a, I got a grandfather. Right. Yeah, I got a grandfather. He's a full. He was a full-blood Cherokee uh, in South Carolina, and he looked. He had the skin of a black man. And my grandmother, she was a dark woman. She wasn't as dark as him, but you know. Can anybody just use some damn common sense for once and go check out stuff and read and look at pictures that were taken back in the 1600s and find out that that most Indians were dark people? That's why I raised the question um, pertaining to that definition from the 1828 Western Dictionary. I mean, copper. You know, we're we're clear on what color copper is. It's dark. You know, so the par- yeah, absolutely. The paradigm has been shifted. You know, there's a there's an artificial criteria in place now for what it is to be you know a, a quote unquote Native American or an Indian I prefer the term uh, you know indigenous but yeah. it is what it is I, I oscillate between the, the terms but there's been a paradigm shift and, and, and no one wants to discuss you know historical record or you know definitions and things of that nature you know everyone you know had their mind whitewashed you mm-hmm. know via you know, uh, depictions in movies and so forth of, of, of what a, a quote-unquote Indian is. And no one wants to veer away from that whitewashed image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it happens frequently, you know, in, in uh, American miseducation. You know, the, the standard is removed. You know, a false standard is put in its place. And if you don't adhere to that false standard, then you're somehow radical or, you know, you're talking a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Meanwhile, you're spot on. And you know, you, anytime I have this type of discussion with people, I, I pull out that Webster 1828 definition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I ask, okay, well, who who are you? <laughs> because you don't fit this description. All right, let me let me take you it. Know, a, you're not. Uh huh. But let me take no, it. A, let me take it a step further. This damn fool lunatic in the White House had the nerve. He had the damn nerve. To tell the Wampanoags, the Mashpees, and I know those people, those are friends of mine. Uh, well, we're going to put your take your land out of trust and uh, blah, 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 because you don't look like Indians. And I'm trying to yeah. figure out what the hell Indians is he talking about? Is he talking about the Hollywood image of an Indian? That's exactly what he's talking about. And, and, exactly. Yeah, and the other yeah. thing, too, they didn't bother to mention that a few years before he got, he slithered his way into the presidency of the United States, he was in a fight to get a casino open up there in Massachusetts, a big casino, and the Wampanoag people stood up against him in court, and he lost. So is this just a racist thing, or is this a combination of racism, capitalism, or he just don't want to have anybody of color up there running anything i think it's a combination of all of those things and i think when it comes to particularly for that tribe unfortunately they were denied their appeal their appeal was not um supported when they appealed against the first decision and i when i was reading about the issues that were going on for their tribal land i found just how even the way that people law enforcement was going onto their tribal community and forcing innocent people off of their land. I think it's absolutely disrespectful. It's definitely capitalism and racism for sure. And I think that it was a poor judgment on behalf of our government. And it speaks to the lack of support or respect to tribal communities. And we got to wake up. We got to really, like my father being that he's been so connected to a tribal community for so long that he was very upset. And for me personally, I think we need to think about with all these treaties having issues being overturned and that they're changing up dynamics when it comes to tribal lands, I think it's definitely for a tribal lands perspective to be looking at that. And the last one I'll say too, um, 
what about your comments you just made about the looks and appearances of Native people. And I agree with what everyone has been saying about what the original people look like. But I think, like we said before, when it comes to social media, Hollywood, it's just all these false images of what people look like. It has brainwashed people into thinking this is the only identity that matters, even to the point that people in tribal communities think that this is the only thing that matters, they've which been, is ridiculous. They've been colonized and, in their minds, too. Absolutely. 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 Wow. It's affecting the leadership. And now you have people telling you from a colonizer perspective what a native is and that you can only qualify if you meet this agenda or this requires. It's, it's terrible. That's my thought. I, I agree 100% with you, Kimberly. And I think, you know, coming back to our powwow, this is why our powwow, you know, is going to be hopefully just, you know, well attended. And this is why it's important for us to see each other you know, for us to talk about, to share our stories, for us to talk about issues that are happening with the nations that, particularly those who look like us, but then across Indian country and to weigh in, right? Because I know we're doing not just the powwow, but we're having a panel discussion. Some folks will be having educational material, right? So I, I think it, it's a chance for us to, to, you know, acknowledge our ancestors, to dance and, you know, practice the tradition in those ways. But definitely to say, like, it's time to wake up, folks. You know, we, we need to weigh mm -hmm. in on what's happening in, in those areas in Indian country in a respectful way. Well, you know, uh, you know, being respectful, uh, I think we, we as Indian people have, have been bowing down too long. And it's mm -hmm. time for us to get up off our knees and stop praying and, and, and stand up and be the women and the men that the creator put us here to be. I have mm. got, now I got a confession to make. In 2014, I brought about a new organization called NCBAI, the National Congress of Black American Indians. I brought about that organization because I'd had so many conversations with so many people that were quote unquote African American, at least they thought they were. And when I asked them about who was your grandma and who was your grandpa, oh, well, my grandpa was a Mohawk Indian from New York. Really? Okay, so you're still an African-American? Yeah? No, I don't think so. Well, what am I? You're a black Indian. Oh, okay. And then the day of the event, I got a call from a cousin that I hadn't talked to in like 10 years who lives in New York. And she says, uh, you remember when grandma died? This was my, 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 my father's mother. I said, yeah. She said, I know you were wondering whatever happened to all the pictures and all the letters and the papers. I said, yeah. Well, grandma left that to me. I said, girl, I've been looking for that stuff. She said, I ain't got a problem with sharing it with you. She said, but I got to tell you this. I said, what? You know, grandma was, was born on Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, uh, and grew up in old San Juan. I said, yeah. She said, you know, she was a Taino Indian. I said, yeah, I'm Taino, Cherokee, and Shoshone. She said, but I got a surprise for you. I said, what's that? I was going through some of grandma's old letters. And do you know that grandma had a grandmother on the island of Puerto Rico that was an African slave? I said, what? She said, yeah, I got the letter. I got the proof. She said, well, how do you feel about that? I said, I know it has a black in me. She said, oh, how'd you know that? I said, because I can sing and dance. <laughs> and and I used to have, you know, a lot of guys would get jealous because I look like an Indian, which I, I do. Um, and they were wondering, well, how can you do that? I said, well, Indians have been singing and dancing even before the white man got here. You know, so that's my confession. Anybody got a problem with that? No. Good. Because I was going to tell you, you know, you got a problem with that. See me. Come up here. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had no idea about that until the event came up with the National Congress of Black American Indians. And, and this was the first time in the history of this country that black folks of Indian blood 
and and Indians with uh, black blood had a chance to come and sit together and get to look at each other and visit with relatives that they didn't know they had. And you were there, Shonda, that day. Uh, it was it was a beautiful day. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was a it was a lovely event. It was wonderful. You know, I have to acknowledge um, just some of my my brothers and sisters on the who are also, I guess I can say you know Blindian, but um, like Luis Rodriguez, who yeah. is the former poet laureate of uh, L.A., and his mom is you know from. Um, and I, I don't want to mispronounce it, but his mom is, uh, uh, I'm sorry, mom, uh, grandmother from uh, Mexico, full blood, you know, uh-huh. Indian from Mexico. And uh, father, you know, mixed as well. And so and, and when he comes here, you know, people call him Chicano or, mm-hmm. you know, or they say Mexican. And he's like, he's like, you know, I'll take all of those titles, he said, but you can't take away from me, you know, my history and my ancestry. And so I have a lot of, you know, brothers and sisters who are, you know, in my um, sweat lodges, you know, sweat lodge ceremonies and, and, and whatnot, who are, um, you know, have, quote unquote, Hispanic or Latino, Latina um, heritage, but they've also got that connection to the Shoshone, they've got connection to the Shumash or, you know, uh-huh. um, the Tanva or Tueno, you know, like, so I, I think it's interesting because, um there was a Facebook page going around for the um, uh, 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 saying um, that uh, Latino Mexicans were playing Indian, you know, and oh, kind of no. like they were facing oh, the same issue that no. we were. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. See, see, be, see, before those fools managed to, to get lost at sea and find their way across the Atlantic Ocean, this was all one piece of land. And and just like we have in Canada, First Nations and and the people here in, in the United States, North America, these were the same people in Central and South America and Mexico. They had the same thing we had. They had tribal identities. They yes. had chieftains. I mean, you know, they had everything that we had. They had clans. They knew their clans. Oh, they you're damn them. right they did, you know. So, you know, they didn't cross no borders. The borders crossed them. These people that you see that are coming from south of Tejas, these are just Indians coming home. Right. They were here exactly. first. That's right. <laughs> you know, so this whole thing about Latino, what is Latin? Latin is the language they use in the Catholic Church to hide their dirt. And this word Hispanic, when Juan Pardo and Cortez and those guys came across the ocean, they yeah. victimized the people that were already here. So it was his pain, Hispanic, his pain that he put upon these people. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe I'm just old and cynical, <clears throat> but you know, <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to tell it like <laughs> I, I'm. I'm going to tell like it is. And I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. Tell it. Tell it like it is. Bring the history. Bring that history. Oh yeah. Yes. So, yes. Uh, my brother, Okra, what are you thinking, man? You sit back there taking all this in. Come on and spit it out. <laughs> again, Jay, I mean, I'm in complete agreement. I mean, again, I think it, it speaks to the fact that the standards that are being adhered to are colonial standards. I have a, a, a deep-seated hatred for colonial standards. Um, I find frustration in our people continuing to adhere to them. Um, it, it puzzles me because I've never worked anything to do with colonial standards from, from an early age. Um, I ain't going to incriminate myself, but uh, <laughs> I've always been the type to throw off, you know, colonial ideas and colonial standards, whether it's related to, you know, iconography, religion, uh-huh. etc. I mean, it, it serves no purpose other than to make you a good Slave, and you know, a lot of people, you know, are not familiar with that term as it relates to, you know, indigenous people. But you know, I assert that there's a slavery there as well—not just a physical slavery, but a, a mental slavery, a psychological. Slavery, oh hell yeah! Mm-hmm. Uh, that is taking place, you know, throughout the world, indigenous people throughout the world, not just in the Americas. No, adhere to a colonial standard. It doesn't benefit us in the least. And that that thing of enslavement of the mind. 
and the physical body didn't start just here in the Americas. It was no. sim- it was simultaneously done in Africa and other parts of the world. At the same time, these fools went into their countries across the sea and, and us and told us that uh, you can no longer pray to your gods and your deities because they're no longer viable. But uh, you have to pray to our God, the God of love. That's a bunch of crap. And there were some smart people who said, well, if, if we have to give up our gods and pray to your God of love, then why the hell are you killing us in the name of that God? That's right. You know? Exactly. And, and, and then this in 1452, when the, the Pope of the Catholic Church issued the papal bulls or that Catholic order that told Europeans that you have the right to go anywhere in the world, uh, and if you go anywhere in the world and you find people don't look like you, talk like you, agree with you, then you have the divine right from the Roman Catholic Church to subdue them, which means enslave them or kill them. And if they refuse to submit to the Roman Catholic Church, then anything that they have that you want, you could take it from them as long as you gave 10% back to the Roman Catholic Church. Now, how big a racist edict was that? Yeah, tremendously. When you take into consideration um, the, way, the way you just laid it out, essentially what's being stated in that is, okay, travel, when you encounter people who do not submit to our ideas, our ideologies, reduce them to a position of servitude. You know? And the criteria upon which they're made to be reduced to a position of servitude is that they're quote-unquote uncivilized or savage. That's thrown around a lot. Uh-huh. Right? And how do we know that they're uncivilized or they're savage? They don't worship our image as their deity. Yeah, and you know what? Before they, came, know, o- before they came over here, they were killing their own folks. And they even slaved their own Absolutely. European people, the Irish. They brought them over here. And I can remember because I had a good friend when I was a little boy that was Irish. And in his grandfather's shop, he had a sign hidden behind his desk that said, uh, help wanted, Irish need not apply. Mm-hmm. You wow. Know? And we can go into that conversation another time because we're, we're at the end of the hour now. But I got a lot to say, and I know you all got a lot to say. But I, wanna, I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of this today to all three of you. I love you so much. Thank you so much Likewise, for having brother. us. Oh, we love you too. And, yes, thank and of you course, so much. As we get our new date for the powwow, Kimberly, um, she's our fearless leader. So if we get the new date, you know, she'll she'll you know share with you, so you can share with all the folks. That's not a problem. I, yes. I, I already adopted her in a, in, in okra. You know, and it, it, thank it, you. It, that, <laughs> my my niece and my nephew and Shonda, you know, you've been my sister for a long time. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Jay. Okay. So anyway, yes. Shonda, can you give us 30 seconds, 45 seconds of closing thoughts? And then uh, we'll go to you, Okra, and then we'll go to uh, Kimberly. Go ahead, Chandra. Uh, 30 seconds of closing thoughts. Um, I think it is important for us to make sure to pass on any information we have about our ancestry and heritage to our children. And I think primarily this is why I do the work that I do. This is why I lecture. This is why I do workshops. Um, you know, this is why I wrote the book Black Indian. This mm-hmm. is why I powwow. This is why I participate in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to connect what happened in the past to what's in the present and how can we make it better for us, for ourselves, and for everyone in the future. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Yes, sir. Um, I just want to say in closing, um, on a daily and ongoing basis, uh, do whatever you can to free yourself from the the psychological change. Uh, When I examine our community, the thing that's paramount to me, most evident to me, is that we're still enslaved and it's psychological. I'm hoping that we'll have an opportunity to do a part two and discuss uh, the aspects of psychological slavery that still exists in uh, the Native community. That's a promise. We will do that. Kimberly? Yes, thank you so much for having me on the show today. And I would like to say the greatest gift that we can give our ancestors is to embrace who they are. 
embrace every tradition and the customs that they were teaching us and to not be afraid to look back and to see the journeys that they were transgressed on. So I think it's something that I'd like to leave for your listeners. And also that if they want to know more information about us with Black Indians NC, we do have a Facebook page and we will be posting info about an updated date for power, which you know you will be one of the first to know that <laughs> date. And thank you again. Absolutely. I got some closing thoughts. In the very near future, I will be doing my own podcast, internet radio show. We're going to start out with four hours on Saturday and four hours on Sunday, and you all invited. One thing that I can say is I know who the hell I am, and they can't take that away from me. You know, and I will stand up for that until I take my last breath, and I hope it's no time soon. I've talked to the Creator about me and about what He put me here to do. Should I say, Creator, Mother, Father. And I just told the Creator that I need 35 more years because my work is really just beginning. And I'm not going to go anywhere until I've done what I was sent here to do. And that was to speak for the people, defend the people, and love the people. So I say to you all in Cherokee, Danada, Goa'i, Wado, and we'll talk again soon. I love you all. to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself.